Boker Tov, good morning. Welcome everybody to our prep day version of the uh, Aliyah day. This is the Aliyah day for Parashah Karimot, the sixth and seventh readings. It is the day before God's holy Sabbath, the day that we are prepping for that amazing uh, celebration. Every single, every single week, we get to have a uh, holiday, right? That's how much God loves us. He wants us to have a holiday. He wants us to have a time of refreshing, a time of renewal. And uh, hope you're having a good day. It's a great day in the neighborhood. Won't you be mine? Remember those? For those of you old enough to remember that. And so I uh, hope you're having a great day. We are going to be in the art school Humash on uh, page 651. In chapter 18, this is the beginning of the sixth reading, which begins in chapter 18, and verse will say, uh, verse 6, again, page 651, and we're going to read the sixth and seventh Aliyah, and so here we begin, ready, set, go. Any man shall not approach his close relative to uncover nakedness. I am Adonai. Now, uh, I should have prefaced this by saying that we are about to begin reading about forbidden relationships. These are the relationships that we are not allowed to have. Uh, talking about, uh, of course, intimate sexual relationships. Not allowed to have these. Verse 7, the nakedness of your father and the nakedness of your mother you shall not uncover. She is your mother, you shall not uncover her nakedness. The nakedness of your father's wife you shall not uncover, it is your father's shame. The nakedness of your sister, whether your father's daughter or your mother's daughter, whether born to you, you may remain in the home or born to one who must remain outside of it, you shall not uncover their nakedness. The nakedness of your son's daughter or of your daughter's daughter you shall not uncover their nakedness, for they are your own shame. The nakedness of your father's wife's daughter, who was born to your father, she is your sister, you should not uncover her nakedness. The nakedness of your father's sister, you should not uncover, she is your father's flesh. The nakedness of your mother's sister, you should not uncover, for she is your mother's flesh. The nakedness of your father's brother, you should not uncover, do not approach his wife, he is your aunt, or she is your aunt, sorry. Verse 15, the nakedness of your daughter-in-law you should not uncover. She is your son's wife. You shall not uncover her nakedness. The nakedness of your brother's wife you should not uncover. It is your brother's shame. The nakedness of a woman and her daughter you should not uncover. You should not take her son's daughter or her daughter's daughter to uncover her nakedness. They are close relatives. It is a depraved plot. You should not take a woman in addition to her sister to make them rivals, to uncover the nakedness of one upon the other in her lifetime. That did not work out well for Jacob. Of course, it wasn't really Jacob's fault, really, because he was tricked. So someone might say, well, uh, didn't Jacob violate the Torah? Well, kind of, I suppose, but he was really tricked. It wasn't really his choice. But nevertheless, we're not allowed to do it. And uh, it did not work out well for him. Verse 19. You shall not approach a woman in her time of unclean separation, that's Nidah, and to uncover her nakedness. 
You should not lie carnally with your neighbor's wife to contaminate yourself with her. Verse 21. You should not present any of your children to pass through for Molech, and do not profane the name of your God, I am Adonai. Verse 22. You shall not lie with a man as one lies with a woman. It is an abomination. Now, this is the first time that the word abomination is used with respect to forbidden relationships, and it's pointed out in the art scroll here. The reason is that the other uh, relationships, although they are forbidden, they're still natural. They're not allowed. They come with consequences, of course. But there's still natural relationships, a man with a, with a woman, etc., a woman with a man. But in this case of a homosexuality, it's not allowed. It is uh, not only not allowed, it's considered an abomination. And the word for abomination that is used here is the word uh, toeva. And the word toeva actually has the same connotation as idolatry. So, <clears throat> pardon me, when it comes to homosexual um, uh, relationship, it is absolutely idolatry. And we should not be uh, okay with it. So it's not, we shouldn't, you know, in our day and age, there's, an, there's been an agenda for many, many years to promote, to encourage uh, homos the homosexual agenda, homosexual life, and we're all supposed to accept it as if it's just everything is fine. Now, we, obviously, you know, we live in a free country. People can can do what they want to do, and um, uh, there's that. But I'm t I'm talking here in terms of of theological religious idea. Uh, God did not make anyone homosexual. Let me say that again. God did not make anyone homosexual. People say, well, they were born that way. Well, here's the problem with that. God, right here in the Holy Torah, we don't have to be confused. It's right here in God's Holy Torah. He says, It says right here, you should not lie with a man as, as one lies with a woman. It's an abomination. So right here, God refers to this as a sin. Not just any sin. But an abomination, a sin that's a, uh, akin to idolatry. And we know that idolatry is perhaps the most serious of all sins. The bottom line is, is that we can say with confidence, we don't have to have any type of, uh, we don't have to have any type of proof. We can say with confidence that God absolutely did not make anyone homosexual. Why? Because he did not make anybody predisposed to sin. Remember that God makes us fat, he makes us thin, he makes us tall, he makes us short, he makes us white, he makes us black, he makes us from America or from China, he makes us wealthy, he makes us pure, uh, poor, excuse me, we're we either going to have a full set of hair or uh, not so much. Uh, either way, that's all up to God. The only thing that we have choice of is right and wrong. So God gives us free choice. We can choose to sin or not to sin, to do good or not to do good. That's what's left up to us. So if God makes you or I or anybody else a homosexual, then he has removed from us free choice. 
and he has predisposed us to a life of sin. We are coming out of the box, breaking his commandments. There's nothing we can do about it. We can't help it. Therefore, when he punishes us for it, it becomes an unjust God. All kinds of problems. And people so willingly accept that. In our day and age, the reason I'm spending some time on this is because it's so prevalent in our day and age. But God did not, absolutely did not make anybody homosexual because that would mean, listen, if that were true, then that would mean that this uh, verse in the Torah, Hasve Shalom, is not true, which would mean that the entire Torah is not true. The moment that you remove one mitzvah, you remove all of them. Why? Because God considers his mitzvot one unit. That's why you can't say, well, you can't commit adultery, but it's okay to have a ham sandwich. If you do that, you've removed the entire Torah. Why? Because the Torah is Echad. God is Echad and His name is Echad. God is one. He's, he's one with His word. You cannot take anything from God. You can't remove any aspect of Him. He cannot change in any way. If God changes in any way, our entire faith is, uh, we're wasting our time. If we say that God can change in any way, like He he likes peanut butter yesterday. He hates it today. Now we have a problem. We have nothing upon which we can stand. So you should know that. So it says in verse 23, Do not lie with any animal to be contaminated with it. A woman shall not stand before an animal for mating. It is a perversion. Many people read those kind of things. They cannot imagine that type of activity, but I'm telling you, the, the society in which we live has become so depraved that uh, is coming down the road. And in fact, in some cases, it's already happened. There was a news story at some point, I don't know if it's true or not, I didn't investigate it, talking about somebody petitioning to marry their dog. Sounds crazy, right? But why not? If we're already telling people, you, you're a girl, but guess what? You can be whatever you want to be. You're a, you're, you were born a male, but you, if you identify as a female, that's, that's quite all right. In fact, you can identify as nothing. You can identify as confused. We recent, recently did a little doctor visit, and you fill out the little initial form, you know, just uh, name, address, phone number, basic things, you know. And on the form, there was about six or seven boxes you could check as to your sexual identity. Are you male? Are you female? Are you transgender? Are you... PG13QSF37-1. I mean, it's crazy. So if we're that insane, then why not go ahead and allow people to marry their cat? I mean, that's how crazy it is. Where does that come from? How did we get so crazy? We got away from the Bible. It's really what it amounts to it. We got away from God's word. We start uh, taking away the foundation and the whole building falls. We're surprised. Look, I, I, I got rid of the foundation. My house collapsed. Why are we so surprised? Verse 24, do not become contaminated through any of these, for through all of these, the nations that I expelled before you became contaminated. So all of these prohibitions to include homosexuality and bestiality, what does this tell us? This is all the practice of the pagan nations. This is all the practice of those who are godless. So that's why we can't accept it. In verse 25, The land became contaminated, and I recalled its iniquity upon it, and the land disgorged its inhabitants. So we know this already, but it's worth reminding ourselves that sin, this type of sin, it doesn't just affect our souls. 
but it affects everything to include the very land itself. This goes back to the notion that our observance of God's commandments are, uh, they have a, a, a very real physical effect on, uh, on, on, on everything. Everything physical is what I'm trying to say, is that we, we think about our commandments uh, that affect us spiritually, but in reality, our observance of God's will has a positive effect on uh, everything, to include uh, the very soil of our of our uh, lands, right? Of our the soil of our grass, our everything natural and material. Oh, flag is upside down. I got to fix my flag. So it says here in uh, verse twenty six, but you shall safeguard my decrees, my judgments. Do not commit any of these abominations the native or the proselyte who lives among you. For the inhabitants of the land who are before you committed all these abominations and the land became contaminated. Let not the land disgorge you for having contaminated it as it disgorged the nations that was before you. For if anyone commits any of these abominations, the people doing so would be cut off from among their people. You shall safeguard my charge. Do not not to do any of the abominable traditions that were done before you and not contaminate yourself through them. I am Adonai. There was a comment in the art scroll Humash that I had uh, highlighted yesterday I want to bring out today talking about um, the concept of, of Judaism being a, a, a pro-life faith. And so it says right here in the art scroll Humash, um, it says here, um, talking about the word hulk, it says many commentators have noted that the word hulk is derived from the roots hate, kuf kuf, which means to engrave into metal or stone. It says this implies an unyielding permanence that is impervious to changing ideas or conditions. Thus the Torah's decrees that are, are eternally valid understood or not. God's word is engraved. Whether we understand it or not doesn't matter. Doesn't matter if the world's values change. Now people are much more accepting as of a homosexual life, for instance. It seems to be even in vogue. It seems to be that if you're homosexual, you, you can actually, uh, you're more popular. But nevertheless, despite the fact that it's more accepted, doesn't make it okay in God's view. God's law is God's law. It never, ever changes. So it says, Thus the Torah's decrees are eternally valid, understood or not, by juxtaposing the logical laws with the metalogical decrees in, the, in these verses. The Torah implies a similarity between them. So it says here, we're, meaning that we're supposed to treat the laws that make perfect sense to us and the laws that don't make maybe such perfect sense, it doesn't matter. They're all eternal no matter what. So it continues on and says uh, that according to human intelligence, the logical laws make sense. And so, uh, but we should not use that as a measuring rod for whether or not we accept them. So the, a lot of the moral laws to people make a lot of sense. Don't murder, don't lie, don't cheat, don't steal. 
don't uh, or honor your honor your mother and father. These make sense, so we're able. We want to keep them, but it doesn't make sense to us why we cannot have a cheeseburger. It doesn't make sense to us why we cannot uh, maybe have pork. It doesn't make sense to us why we can't get a tattoo. So therefore, we're going to jettison those laws, and and that, my friends, is actually a form of idolatry itself because we're making God's word dependent on our own understanding, and more than that, our own approval. Like Hashem has to submit his word to our approval. If we approve it, we'll do it, and, it, and then he should be happy with that. But that's not what we're supposed to do. But anyway, this comment says, for example, no law is as universally accepted as that against murder. Yet... Logic can permit people, so if we want to use logic, quote-unquote, logic can permit people to nibble at the fringes of the sanctity of life by arguing that a fetus is less than a true life and that suffering or impaired people are unworthy of life or that human life is no more worthy of preservation than animal life. We see all of that happen in our day and age where people, uh, they think if your baby's still in the womb is not quite human. There's more attention given to saving the whales or uh, saving the dogs and cats at the SBCA. And by the way, I love dogs and I love cats. Uh, but there's more emphasis given to that than there is to preserving and saving human life. I bet you that if there was a campaign to abort baby whales, that there would be a national outcry. There would be a 3 million or 10 million man march in Washington, D.C. Uh, but, but when it comes to aborting human babies, everybody, uh, they, they're not only okay with it, they, they, they want to sanction it. So anyway, it says, Consequently, the Torah stresses that one must accept the divine origin and unchanging nature of God's laws with the same faith that one accepts its decrees. So in other words, this is why we're not allowed to use our own logic, our own sense of, of right or wrong. We have to stick with God's holy word. Why? Because otherwise we will be tempted, as it says here, to uh, nibble, as it, to use this phraseology, to nibble at the fringes of the sanctity of life, for instance, or any other mitzvah. Another insight I want to bring down. This is um, an insight from, again, from the article Humash talking about life over law from chapter 18 and verse 5. It says, You shall observe my decrees and my laws, which man shall carry out, and by which he shall live, I am Adonai. It says, and by which he shall live. Ramban writes that the term by which he shall live refers particularly to the social commandments between man and his fellow man. But the sages derive from the expression by which he shall live that the commandments were given for the sake of life, not death. Therefore, if the performance of a commandment may endanger life, such as the familiar case of a patient who must be rushed to a hospital on the Sabbath, the need to preserve life supersedes the observance of the Sabbath. The exceptions are three cardinal sins. Idolatry, forbidden sexual relationships, and murder. Cases where a violation of commandments would cause desecration of God's name. This is Sanhedrin uh, 74a. 
So Hidushe uh, Harim adds another little insight to this concept. <clears throat> and he says that this is interpreting this commandment that teach that a person should not perform commandments apathetically. Rather, we are enjoined to find in the commandments our primary source of joy, enthusiasm in life. You are to live through the commandments. So the commandments of God were given so that we should live by them. So we're not to have a sadistic idea of, of, uh, of dying um, for the sake of the commandments, unless it's one of three mitzvahs we're not allowed ever to violate, which is, as I read a second ago, uh, I, I, idolatry, uh, murder, and adultery. We're not allowed um, to um, suffer, so to speak, um, f- uh, God's reputation for committing those sins, Baruch Hashem. So, Another couple of points here. I want to go back to um, Rabbi Monk from uh, some of his insights from a few days ago. There is a statement um, here going back uh, to chapter 16. And it has to do with uh, the mentioning of God's name in the sanctuary. Um, There's a movement that exists called the Sacred Name Movement. It really has nothing at all to do with Judaism. It really has nothing at all to do even with Hebrew roots. The Sacred Name cult um, came about in the 1930s as an offshoot of the Seventh-day Adventist. The Seventh-day Adventist and the Jehovah's Witness are cousins, and they are from birthed, I should say, out of a cult from the 1850s known as Millerism. You can look all of this up and see how they came about. But there was a, a, a guy, a group or whatever from the Seventh-day Adventists that's decided that we should pronounce God's name. Um, and there's all kinds of conspiracy theories that the, the Jews, um, naturally, that we were guilty of of trying to hide God's name or some kind of nonsense like that. It's ridiculous. Um, nothing but anti-Semitic nonsense, which is why there's such a strong spirit of anti-Semitism in that cult. But I digress. The Yudke Vavke, the divine name, is found, of course, in every Torah scroll. It's found in every uh, Hebrew Tanakh. It's found in every uh, Hebrew-English Siddur. Uh, it's found everywhere. The, the reason they, they, that it's, it's quote-unquote hidden is because they can't read Hebrew. That's why they can't see it. But the issue is, is that no one knows how to pronounce the divine name. Nobody knows. Nobody knows. Nobody knows. Absolutely no one, especially those who can't even read Hebrew. They're certainly not going to know. But nobody knows. And, and even in the book of Revelation, it talks about when the Mashiach returns, he's going to have a name written upon him that nobody knows. So at the end of the day, we know this is reality. <clears throat> the other issue is, is that God has many names, and I'm not talking about all the false God names like, oh, you know, whatever, but I'm talking about biblically. God is known as, as Hashem. He's known as Adon, Adonai, El Elyon, HaKadosh Baruch Hu. There's many, many, many titles. God, Lord, Master, Master of the Universe. Um, but he has one personal name that is uh, extremely holy, and therefore, we don't say it. Why? Because we don't throw around God's holy name. And since we don't know how to say it, and again, nobody knows, 
once you say it and say it incorrectly, you've now desecrated it. So once you per- try to pronounce the name that you don't know, you're just guessing. Um, this is not something you guess with. Because once you pronounce the name and you've pronounced it incorrectly, you've now desecrated it. Okay, it's very, very bad. So then you might be saying the name, trying to pronounce God's holy name, God forbid, in the bathroom or in some other type of uh, unholy place. And then, you know, people have the UK Vavke on their T-shirts and you take that T-shirt and you put it in the dirty laundry with all the mess. Uh, just And you wear that T-shirt into the bathroom. All kinds of issues, right, with it. But I'm, tr- I'm saying all this to get to a point. The time when the temple existed and we knew how to pronounce the divine name, it was only spoken in the temple and only then by the high priest. And this is what happened when people would hear the divine name. This is how holy the divine name. It says, When the Kohanim and the people in the courtyard of the temple heard the Kohen Gadol pronounce the holy name of Adonai in this phrase, that is, before Adonai shall you be cleansed, they bowed down, prostrated themselves, and said, Baruch Shem Kavod, Malchutu Le'olam Vahed, Blessed is the name of his glorious kingdom for all eternity. And the Kohen Gadol uttered the holy name ten times during Yom Kippur. So it was only said, as I, as I just mentioned, at the temple. But when, and even then, when it was said, people fell on their face and cried out, Baruch Shem Kavod, Malchutu Le'olam Vahed. That's how holy, that's how sanctified, that's how special the divine name is. And it's one of the reasons why um, we do not just throw it around and use it. Even if we knew how to say it, we wouldn't. We wouldn't. Even if we knew, we wouldn't. And uh, someone says, well, aren't you supposed to call upon the name of God? Well, again, God has many names, but really that's... Uh, Calling upon someone's name or praying in their name is really to pray or to call upon their attributes. So when we say that we pray in the name of Yeshua, we're not talking about that we have to uh, say his name precisely or, or whatever. We're talking about that we're praying in his name, meaning that we are praying in his merit, that we're asking Hashem, we're, ta- we're praying to Hashem. And we're asking Hashem to answer our prayers, to hear our prayers in the merit of Yeshua. Not based on who we are, who I am, but on who He is. This is a very Jewish concept, by the way, because very often when um, Jews pray, they will sometimes go to the grave sites of Zadokim and they will pray. They're not praying to the Zadok who's in the grave. They're standing there praying to God that they should answer their prayer. Why? In the merit of the Zadok that they're standing near. That's a Jewish idea. That's a Jewish uh, concept. So the Zadok who surpasses all Zadokim, of course, is uh, Messiah Yeshua. So, um, So there's that. The uh, Shabbat, I just want to mention again, I'm just kind of trying to cover some ground here, some things that were left on the table this week. The Yom, Yom Kippur is a Sabbath of complete rest. It is a Shabbat Shabbaton Hilechem, a Sabbath of complete rest for you. This is why the stringencies are such on, 
uh, on Yom Kippur. It is a, a time in which we cease from all um, activity, as we talked about uh, earlier this week, um, such as, you know, we're, we're fasting, we're avoiding um, uh, intimacy with our, our spouses and so on. But this becomes, it's, 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 I just want to emphasize that even though it's a time of affliction, but it's also a time of joy, there's a, a level of joy in Yom Kippur um, because we understand that God is a gracious and merciful God. So even though we're afflicting ourselves, remember what I talked about earlier in the week, the affliction is, the purpose of it is to draw us close to God. And we know that as we do that, God is going to be merciful. So I just want to point out that even though it's a, a day of of uh, solemn rest, it's not a day of, of necessarily of mourning and sadness, but there is an element of joy. The festival of Yom Kippur is said to be here in the Torah. This shall be an eternal decree for you. And Rabbi Eliezer and Pirkei Rabbi Eliezer states that the tenth of Tishrei, was instituted as Yom Kippur because it was on that day that the sin of the golden calf was forbid, uh, forgiven. It's also the day that God brought, or excuse me, that Moses brought down the renewed covenant, right? So it's a day of renewed covenant. So it says the expression, Hukat Olam, an eternal decree, uh, leads him, that is Rabbi Eliezer, to conclude that Yom Kippur, along with Purim, because Purim and Yom Kippur have a very similar... Um, name, will never be abolished even though with the coming of the Messiah, the other festivals will lose the reason for their beings. But Yom Kippur, he's saying here in Pirkei Rebbe Eliezer 46, will be forever. Why? Because the holiday is not, see this is as we talked about a few days ago, the holiday is not just about the forgiving of sins, but it's about the elevation of the person to their godly calling. So the reason Yom Kippur will continue is because it's a day when we become elevated to the status of what it will be like in the Alam Haba. Uh, perhaps this is this is why it was on Yom Kippur in the afternoon that the women would go out and dance, the, the unmarried women, of course, would go out and dance. Um, and that's the time when... Uh, the young men would go out and they would choose their bride, whoever was dancing before them, right? You think, what an activity to have on Yom Kippur. Yom Kippur is supposed to be this time of solemnity, and so what is this about? Well, that's reminiscent of the women who danced and all of us who danced, and God appeared in the middle of us and we pointed and said, this is our God and we will worship him. This is an indicative of the fact the Yom Kippur will be that eternal celebration of our elevation to the level of, of uh, angels and beyond to be able to even see God, to know God, and to even point at him and say, this is our God, and we will worship him. Well, so much more could be said, but we are out of time. We are end of our Aliyah. This has been an amazing tour portion. There are so many other insights we didn't get to, but such is life. As we've said so many times, the Torah of God is uh, vast. It's beautiful. It's deep. It's, uh, you can never exhaust it, and we can always learn from it, and we'll always learn from it with God's help. Next week, we will get into Kedoshim, 
the uh, power shaw dealing with aspects of holiness and and the laws of holiness because that's what we're called to. We're called to be a holy people. Until then, may you have a beautiful, wonderful, and magnificent day. Have a great Sabbath. I look forward to seeing everybody. This is the Shabbat uh, for the, the celebration of Rosh Chodesh. So we will be celebrating uh, the coming month of Iyar. Until then, may you have a blessed, wonderful, magnificent day. Look forward to seeing everybody then. Come to Shul tomorrow or join us online. And I hope everybody does from all over the world. Shalom and blessings and Shabbat Shalom.